again a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, they went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their, their city on fire. And he said to the slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the street and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how do you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, here's a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. Now, what, uh, what happens in verse 3? to tell everybody, invite everybody to come in, but they don't. Yeah, these are some people who've already gotten the save the date, uh, you know, sticker. They may have already gotten the, you know, invitation formally, an RSVP'd, but now the, the, the word goes out, it's time. You know, come. The wedding feast is ready, and they won't come. You know, I don't know what all had happened, but they go back on their commitment to attend and they don't want to come. Well, you know, the the man who provided the wedding feast, how would you feel if your invited guest wouldn't come? A little miffed. Yeah, miffed, hurt, you know. So look at what he does in verse 4. He sent out other slaves saying, tell those who've been invited, hey, I got everything ready. You know, the ox and the fat and livestock are butchered, and, and, and you really need to come. I mean, this is going to be a good feast. I mean, think about investing so much in preparing a feast like that, and then people don't show up. Well, how do the people take the message of the slaves? They ignore them. Yeah, they don't pay any attention. They ignore them. And worse... They mistreated them and killed them. That's pretty ridiculous. They murdered the people whose only crime was to invite them to the party. Yeah, wow. This is this is pretty ridiculous. And uh, well, how does the king feel about this news? I like the last king. Yeah, little miffed. <laughs> Maximally miffed. That's a great uh, line there. And what does he do? Sends his arms. arms. <laughs> yeah. We're wipe out that city. You know, sends it up in flames. I mean, he's really outraged by this misbehavior. So uh, you didn't want to be that city. And then he still got the wedding feast ready and. Well, he needs to go eat it. So what does he do? What does he tell his slaves? Go invite everybody. Anybody you can find. Yeah. 
you know, the the main highways and you know anywhere you can find them, just go. You know, perhaps he's inviting people whose social calendars weren't quite so busy. You know, these people don't need a second invitation. They may not get an invitation to a wedding feast like this every day of the week. And so they're eager to come and they fill up the wedding hall. You, you thought they might not get that job done, but they do manage to get enough people to fill it up. And, but what does the king observe among the guests? Someone who neglected the dress code. Yeah, somebody who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. And the king says, why'd you come here without wedding clothes? And what does the guy say? Nothing. Nothing. What could he say? What, what, what happened to him? Got thrown out. Yeah, well, yeah. Thrown out where? The outer darkness. Bound hand and foot, thrown in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, that didn't sound like a very pleasant consequence. So let's let's we'll come back to this guy. He's probably the more unusual guy in the story. But think about what the parable's saying. Again, I think most of this is pretty obvious. Who's the king? God. And the son? Son. Jesus. And who are the slaves? Prophets. Prophets, apostles, whatever. And uh, what's the city that he set on fire? Jerusalem. Yeah, I think so. I think this is a, a story that's again showing what was going to happen to Jerusalem as a result of their rejecting Jesus. Um, and he invites less worthy people. You know, but what about this guy who's not wearing wedding clothes? What does that represent? Well, not everybody from the second group just got to come just freely, no stipulations, you know, whatever. Yeah, this isn't exactly a come-as-you-are sort of party. It's salvation's free, but there's standards. You know, if we accept God's invitation, we commit ourselves to using heaven's dress code. Mm -hmm. Right? Is there a dress code for being invited to God's wedding feast? Gathers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got several passages that specifically tell us what we're supposed to wear. You know, Romans 13, 12. Uh, Lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's, that's in the dress code. Of course, you've got the uh, full armor of God. And what about a passage like Ephesians 4? 22, laid aside the old self. And then in 24, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We're supposed to wear godliness, righteousness, holiness. And we, we better be doing that when we accept this invitation. Uh, so... God doesn't like the people to, you know, try to come to his wedding feast and not repent of their sins and live faithfully before him. 
comments and thoughts? I've heard a number of different ways to that this happened culturally. I mean, whether the wedding clothes were provided by the king or whether they were supposed to, you know, dress up on their own. I didn't know if you had any. I have no idea. So why would he add that extra little tidbit there when he's talking to the original invitees? Well, I mean, obviously there are disciples also in the midst. So he's not, you know, uh, I mean, this, this, the narrator is just telling what the king's doing. The king says this to the one without the wedding clothes, and I think Jesus includes this part of the story to try to help these people understand that while, you know, he's going out and he's inviting everybody, their standards, you know, they gather both the evil and the good, but it doesn't mean you can stay evil. And, and still have God's favor. So I think it's maybe a clarification that helps us to see that being invited doesn't mean you don't have to follow the rules. You don't have to have holiness and righteousness. So you can be wearing, it doesn't matter what you're wearing when you're called, but when you respond, you gotta get rid of the old clothes. We put off the old and put on the new, exactly. I mean, the, Jesus, when he tells these stories, you know, sometimes has more than one point in mind. Uh, and, and he can tell them in such a way as you can see a lot of different applications that you need to make. Other questions and comments? Well, that's the three parables. Now the trick questions or the tough questions. They, are, they go on the offensive. They're tired of the parables and they want to catch Jesus. And this first one's fascinating, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might entrap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. All right, what group initiated this line of questioning? Pharisees. The Pharisees. Have we read about the Pharisees before? Quite a bit. But the Pharisees don't come to Jesus. What do they do? They sent some of their disciples to Jesus. Does that seem kind of weird? I mean, what's a Pharisee disciple? Pharisee. Probably a Pharisee. It would strike me that if you follow a Pharisee and you know walk like a Pharisee and quack like a Pharisee, you're probably a Pharisee. You know. Uh, so why say that they sent their disciples? Well, they didn't send the big shot. It doesn't sound 
They didn't send the big shots, it doesn't sound like. I'm wondering why not. Because maybe Jesus would go easier on them and they could succeed in trapping him. I think they think that by sending these guys, they can trap him more easily. Yeah, this was an undercover operation. Yeah, in fact... Probably recognize them. Yes, he doesn't want them to recognize them. Luke 20.20 says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. So they are intentionally trying to mislead Jesus or at least make it him not know that this question came from them. Because if Jesus knows the question came from them, he sort of knows the motive for the question and, you know, he might be more cautious or he might refuse to answer or whatever. So they send him some guys he wouldn't know along with the Herodians and, you know, what do they say? To Jesus, this, this is quite a uh, quite a build-up in this question. What's the build-up? They flatter him. <laughs> they really do. What do they say about it? Teacher, you are truthful. You, we know you're truthful. And you're you don't play favorites. Yes, you teach the way of God and truth. You divert, defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. What are they trying to flatter Jesus into here? What's the purpose of this flattery? They want him to make a statement. They want him to be, they want him to state his rule, which they're hoping is contrary to Caesar. Yes, I think they want to try to embolden Jesus to more or less say, you know, I don't defer to anybody. You know, I do tell the truth. I don't care who whose toes get stepped on. I don't care if it's Caesar himself. I tell it like it is. <laughs> now, with some people, that would work. You swell their head and they'll do anything. However, Jesus did not take the bait. You know, he is not going to, you know, make some ill-advised statement because they flattered him with these statements about how honest he is and how impartial he is. You know, were they right in what they said about Jesus? Yeah, but they didn't believe it themselves. They're just trying to use this to get him to pridefully make some not cautious statement. And, and really, they've got him here. Because what if Jesus says, pay taxes? What will that do? Yeah, this will hurt his credibility, hurt his popularity. What if he says, don't pay taxes? The Romans will be a little upset. This is kind of treason. You know, you don't incite the people not to pay the taxes. Which way do you think they would prefer Jesus to answer? Not don't. to pay taxes. Not to pay the tax. Why? They have a legal reason to get him. Yes, and the Romans themselves may lower the boom on this. They don't want anybody going around the country, you know, encouraging people not to pay the taxes. So I think that's what they really are hoping for. But tell us, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a bold tax to Caesar or not? Well, when Jesus answers questions, he doesn't always answer them. 
this way or not. But in this case, Jesus does something really weird. What does he say? Show me that coin. Yeah. He asks for a coin. And they bring him the coin. Had Jesus never seen a coin? This <laughs> is <laughs> kind of weird. You know, should you pay tax or not? Well, show me, show me a dime. <laughs> Why does he want to see it? He's got a question for them. What's his question? Whose face is on it? Yeah, whose face is on this and whose name's on it? And whose face was on it? Whose name was on it? Whose is it? He's got his name and picture on it. Give it back to him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, listen. If you, if you have, I don't know, what what do you have that's got your name and picture Driver's on it? Driver's license. Yeah. Well, well you got anything else that has your name and picture on it? Your name on it? Do you put your name on clothes when you take them somewhere or something? Yeah. Yeah, casserole yeah. dishes. All right. <laughs> well, what if the casserole dish has your name on it? Well, then I want it back. Yeah, it's like it's yours. It's mine. Because you don't put somebody else's name on your casserole dishes, do you? You know, this is kind of like marking identity. And, and it's interesting, they had the coin. They're the ones who came up with it. Whose coin did they have? Caesar's. Well, then give Caesar what belongs to him. And for that matter, give God what belongs to him. That's a perfect answer. How could you answer better than that? That, that you know, that's an answer that we could have studied over for months and never said it like that. And Jesus does, in the heat of pressure right here, answering this prejudicial question, he answers it with one of the best statements that you could make um, about this topic of a Christian's relationship to the government. Um, now, can you think of, well, let's put it this way. Whose image were you made in? God's. And whose name do you wear? So who do you belong to? God. God. Yeah. I mean, we're creating his image and we wear, wear his name. We're God's. We need to be given to God. Caesar's money needs to be given back to him. Isn't it amazing what Jesus can put into a, the answer to a very simple question? You know, kind of a, a dilemma type question. But I think Jesus pretty much diffuses that right here. Questions and comments about that? It says that Jesus perceived their malice. And I'm, I'm trying to think if he would have responded differently if it had been an honest question. Well, the truth it, is I mean, the same, but he might not have used the same tactics. Because, I mean, if somebody said, look, I'm not sure whether I should be paying this. I mean, on the one hand, the government says I need to pay my taxes, but on the other hand, they do some nasty stuff with that money. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? You know, if it's an honest question, would it, I mean, it would... You would assume Jesus might be uh, less um, severe with them, if the question were honest. He, he knows that, though. He knows what his purposes are. 
Other thoughts? And he saw right through their um, oh, yeah. spies. You knew like, what they were up to, yeah, absolutely. You know. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Yeah, it's kind of. I can almost picture him turning. You know, his, the disciples of the Pharisees come up here and ask the question, and he turns to the to the Pharisees. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? <laughs> yes. By sin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he knows where the question really came from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, wouldn't it be frustrating to try to discredit a guy like Jesus, who no matter what you do, it just makes him look better. Mm-hmm. but they really want to show him up and it looks to me like here kind of every group gets its time you know one by one each group will try its best shot and see what we can do so it comes the Sadducees time 23 to 33 on that day some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. All right. Now what's the uh, distinctive feature of Sadducee doctrine that's highlighted here? They don't believe in resurrection. Yes. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 23, that's not the only thing they don't believe in, and it's rather interesting to see the list. Acts 23, verse 8, For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So they don't believe in resurrection spirits or angels. And they have the perfect question to just totally, you know, obliterate belief in the resurrection. What's their question? It's a story problem. Why <laughs> <Yeah, I always laughs> a problem? <laughs> yes. They go through all the details of the son or the man, man that dies with no son or no children, and so his wife or his brother marries his wife. That was a part of the law. That's Deuteronomy 25. We, you know, the idea is, if a guy's married but dies without any children, who's going to carry on his name? Who's going to inherit his property? So it's a responsibility of his brother, if he's willing to accept it, to marry the widow, and the first son will be the deceased man's son in terms of the family name and the, the inheritance. Well, the, and that we call. Do you know what we call that law? Leverage. The Leverett law. Yeah, uh, the L-E-V-I-R is Latin for brother-in-law or something kind of weird you know it looks like it should be from Levi like the Levi rate law but it's really not but anyhow that's just our name for it it doesn't have that name in Deuteronomy 25 but he sets up the, they set up the scenario here 
There's this woman, she was married to one, he died without any children, married the second one, he died without any children, married the third one, he died without any children. By the time he gets done, she's married, been married to seven brothers, didn't have a child with any of them. What are the chances of that happening, do you suppose? Yeah. Pretty remote. And yeah, by the time I got down to six or seven, I'd be eating out every meal. You know, something's wrong with this woman, you know, but you know, that's beside the point. They just come up with the most extravagant case they could imagine. I think probably a hypothetical one. Surely this didn't really happen, you know, I hope. And, uh, but it's a perfect question because it's like, eh, you guys who believe in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? There's really a resurrection, you know, who, who, whose wife is she going to be? I mean. She got seven husbands, you got one woman with seven men. Pal polyandry was never a part of, you know, the belief of Jews or Christians. So how could that be? That just shows you there can't be a resurrection. And what's Jesus' answer? None of the above. You are mistaken. Yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> Don't you love Jesus' calmness? <laughs> and why are they mistaken? They don't understand the scriptures and they don't understand the power of God. Yeah. He didn't even answer the question here. They ask, whose wife would she be? And he says, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, seven choices. Jesus really sets his own agenda in these, uh, you know, dialogues. You know, he doesn't necessarily uh, just do things and say things the way they want him to. It's a good point. And, uh, well, they, they, they are mistaken not understanding the power of God. Because what about the resurrection? They like angels. <laughs> Which you also don't believe in. <clears throat> yeah, and they're like angels in what sense? There's not marriage in Yeah. There's no marriage in heaven. Why would you need to be married? There's no death. There's no reproduction. There's no marriage. Poof. So much for that question. You know, it was based on an invalid assumption. And I, you know, don't you imagine that this had been one of those questions that in elementary school every Sadducee's son asked every Pharisee's son, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine they'd gotten lots of mileage out of this one. They, they really got this, uh, you know, shined up. And, uh, That's funny. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus just, well... There's no marriage in heaven. Oh. <laughs> and furthermore, from the scriptures, he said you don't know the scriptures, he points out how the scriptures prove the resurrection. But he chooses a passage I would have never chosen to prove the resurrection. I didn't know it had anything to do with the resurrection. What's the passage? I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, if God's called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God hundreds of years after they died, is God the God of things that don't exist? They're still there somewhere if he's still their God. You know, he can't call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they'd be like Rover, you know, they're dead all over, and there's no spirit, there's no nothing. If their spirit's still alive, clearly they'll be raised one. You know, they would, they would accept that, but they didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe there was any part of man that continued to live to necessitate a resurrection. 
So Jesus points out, well, if that was the case, then God wouldn't call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, so long after they died. So the patriarchs must still exist, and sooner or later they must be raised. And the crowds are like, wow. I never heard anybody teach like this. You know, Jesus' composure is so impressive in these situations. You know, he never just barely escapes their trap. You know, he gives some of the most profound teachings that, that have ever been given right in answer to some of these questions that no one else, no one else would have even had a clue how to answer. Questions or comments? So they could have gotten their point across with just like two brothers. I would have done the trick, but it's a lot better with seven. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's more outrageous. You know, well, she's just married. The question first started person. out with two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but since seven is perfect number, I mean, we got to get her up to seven. Right. Exaggerated. They kept growing over the years. <laughs> Are these back to back to back? I'm guessing, at least on the same day. One more before they decide to do, not do that. Mm -hmm. There's still another group that, you know, thinks they might get him. Why would, why do the Sadducees even consider themselves believers in God and not even believe in the angels and all that? I mean, that just seems a little far-fetched if they're like the mm -hmm. readers and keepers of the law and reading the law, there's lots of angels in the, in the law. Yeah, you know, I don't know how they explain those angels. I'm, I wouldn't explain them if I had to do it, as they're just messengers, you know, maybe human messengers. But you're right, there's angels all over the Old Testament. The resurrection is a little less clearly proven, and it seems like they only went for the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what I was going to say, because I was thinking that they just believed that the Pentateuch was canon, and the rest of it was... Commentary, yeah, it was okay, but so and, and in and the references strictly in the Pentateuch are there are fewer there than in other places. Yes, like although not necessarily. There's quite a few angels in the Pentateuch, yeah. but not yeah. not so many references to the resurrection. Although I would have never thought this one was there. I would never have seen that point. But it, I, I'm sure nobody else had either. You know, Jesus pulls one out that like. Pulls one out of the Pentateuch, too. Yeah, exactly. Right right from the book of Exodus. You know, right from the heart of what they believed in. So how does that exactly... I mean, it doesn't prove that he was... I mean, it doesn't prove the resurrection. That's for them. Okay. I mean, you, you know, could say, like, they knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They used to be alive, and I'm their God. Yes. Well, but if I'm their God, they're still around somewhere. Not necessarily. Like the way that I read it grammatically, like you would say that today and think that, oh, well, even if they're dead, you're still the same God that they had. It's oh. like saying you're the son of somebody, even if they're dead. No, but it's not. It's like saying, you it's know. The difference between I was the God of Abraham and I am the God. Right? But but the, the verb is not in Hebrew. So it's just implied. I think the idea is, could you say that... Uh, you know, do you ever have an animal that died? Okay, you no. My chicken. 
Oh, what's your chicken? <laughs> chicky. Chicky. Now, could I say, you know, Chicky's Debbie's Chicky? Debbie's chicken? Oh, no, Debbie is Chicky's owner. Yeah, or, or, or can I say that, that, that Debbie's the, the, the owner of the Chicky? Of Chicky? Not currently. Yeah, I mean, you, she used to be. She's not oh. Chicky's owner now. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, wouldn't it be an odd thing to say? Oh, Debbie's Chicky's owner. Yeah, it's like, well, no, Chicky's not around. I mean, there's no Chicky to be the owner of. I'm sorry to tell you, but, you know, there's no chicken heaven. Okay. So, and, and do you see the point that they even would have acknowledged? If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob still exist in some sort of spirit form, then the spirit can't exist forever without the body. You know, that they didn't believe in spirits, therefore they didn't believe in the resurrection. But if they acknowledged that there could be continuing life for spirits, then sure enough, there'll have to be a resurrection. Those two things were very closely tied together in Jewish thought. We might be able to conceive of a spirit just continuing on forever without a body, but they didn't look at it that way. And we shouldn't either. Spirits can't continue on without a body. At least human spirits can. Huh? Well, how did they get to this yeah, why would you, and what is the purpose of saying there's nothing after death? Well, just do whatever you want then. Like, why follow God if there's nothing? Oh, well, ask a bunch of religious people these days. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I will say that the Old Testament is not as explicit on the resurrection doctrine as the New Testament is, and particularly if you confine yourself to the first five books. And how do you know they did that? History. There's no, nothing in the Bible that says that. Do you know when they came to be? No. Uh, I should, but I don't remember. It was Zadok, somebody yeah. that they used. But I don't know which Zadok. Because so. Zadok and Saduk is about the same thing. It says 166 BC. All right, very good. So after the Old Testament. Let's see. Um, the Sadducean party, probably named for Zadok, the high priest appointed by Solomon, denied the authority of tradition, looked with suspicion on all revelation later than the Mosaic law. They denied the doctrine of resurrection, did not believe in the existence of angels or spirits. They were largely people of wealth and position, and they cooperated gladly with the Hellenism of the day. In the New Testament times, they controlled the priesthood and the temple ritual. The synagogue, on the other hand, was the stronghold of the Pharisees. That's, that's good. That's accurate. It doesn't sound like they would have gotten along with the Pharisees at all. Well, unless they need to make common cause with them to do Jesus in. Yeah, but otherwise. otherwise no, they were. They were not. I mean, the Sadducees were the aristocracy. They were the temple, the priesthood, and the government. The Pharisees were more the common people's religious people. They controlled more the synagogue. There were some Pharisees and some Sadducees, both on the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees were probably more respected by the people, but they were not in as high a class. The Sadducees were the elite. And even the elite today tend to be more the skeptics. But the, the temple, the Pharisees would worship in the temple. Mm, yeah. But the Sadducees controlled. They were the, most of the priests were Sadducees. 
from what I've read. I wasn't back there then. But. Really? Yeah. You so don't have to laugh about it. In the resurrection, therefore, who's chicken will chicky be? <laughs> <laughs> Debbie's clearly, yeah. <laughs> or the For dogs. The, the, yeah, the dog. <laughs> the dog that ate it. <laughs> be rovers, and it, rovers dead all it. over. I so. was informed, and it was already buried when I got home from school. I was seven years old. She's never, never been the dogs. same again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of one of the traumas that defined her personality yeah, for the rest. I remember Shaky. I don't remember anything about what happened to and Henny Penny too. Okay, we well just. And Chick. And Chick, the, the rooster. Hey, the names. Yeah, yeah, we're really, really good. Oh, going hey. hard about that? Yeah, yeah, we did. Hey, 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 Chick. And Chicky. Okay, all right. Be careful. All right. It's raining. They're laughing at me. So, each, each one of these groups, they were taking. I mean, it, they were all taking pot shots at Jesus. So, did they all basically have the same motivation? Discredit Jesus, yeah. Well, I mean, that their position was threatened by him, whether they were yeah, I think the Sadducees more on the priesthood side or more on the synagogue side. Certainly that, and I mean, maybe some other things. Obviously, he'd messed with the Sadducees' temple, and he'd messed with the Pharisees' traditions. So, but isn't it amazing how good Jesus is at all this? You wouldn't still have Pharisees or Sadducees today amongst the Jews. I don't Jews think so. I don't think so. I don't know much about Jews today, but I've never heard of such. I mean, now they, I mean, they have, you know, the Orthodox and the Ultra Orthodox and the Conservative and the Liberal. Liberals and the Unorthodox. And I'm thinking there's like another major division, but... What are the Hasidim or something like that? That's the ultra-conservatives. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Are there Messianic Jews? Yeah, whatever that means, but... <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably stop here. Next week. I think so, although we have our meeting, but I'm assuming I can do both.